0: In the days of complete cannabis prohibition, cannabis folks didn't have as much access to advanced science, to complex analytical technology, or most of the great scientists who are now feeling more comfortable to sign on to cannabis-related research. Because of this, our entire scene, including heritage cultivators, newcomers to cannabis, and big agriculture, are all rejiggering their relationship to both cannabis and technology. Some of the science, like terpene and potency tests, are clearly a win and few question their usefulness, even though we are still questioning their accuracy. The other end of the spectrum is full-on genetically modified cannabis DNA, and while that is already happening in labs, the vast number of cannabis consumers are not very supportive of it. Each cannabis consumer needs to decide for themselves how much science they want in their cannabis no part of today's discussion is GMO. No part of this discussion involves genetic insertion into the cannabis genome. Today's discussion is heavy on science technique, though, and much of it describes lab techniques that are new to cannabis. So even though some of the vocabulary may be new, and some of the techniques may sound like science fiction, they in no way degrade the cannabis genome or the pool of available genetics. Most of the techniques actually preserve cannabis genetics for the future. Today's episode is all about tissue culture. I wanted to do this topic because I have a poor understanding of it, and I have a general aversion to laboratories as well. And yet there's so much science in cannabis discussions today. And from my early research into tissue culture, I realized that most cannabis folks were using the term tissue culture really loosely without a firm understanding of the concepts we were talking about, including myself. The goal of today's episode is to translate tissue culture for the layperson with nothing more than a high school understanding of science. Most of the episode will focus on micropropagation, since that is mostly the sort of tissue culture we use in cannabis, but we'll round out the show in the third set by discussing all the tricks that fall under the umbrella of the general term tissue culture. So wash your hands and get ready for some time in the lab. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. This month, we are giving away two prize packs, each with a bag of Happy Endings Root Stimulation Tea Mix and Ocean Bounty Flowering Tea Mix from our friends at Green Bicycles. Kevin Jodry turned me on to this mix about five years ago, and I've been using it in my gardens ever since. So, go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Lose. Today my guest is Ryan Lee. Ryan is a professional cannabis researcher and plant breeder specializing in cultivar design and the inheritance of the therapeutic compounds in cannabis. His background training is in neuroscience and studying the endocannabinoid system with a strong focus on genetics. His postgrad work at the University of British Columbia was in plant breeding and biotechnology. Ryan Lee is founder of Chimera Genetic Resource Management and the Chemavar Corporation. Chimera is essentially a seed bank and cannabis germplasm firm operating in Europe for 20 years. Chemovar Corporation is based in Canada and focuses on breeding specialty cannabis varieties, laboratory analytics, cultivation consulting, cultivar selection and germplasm sourcing, licensing and importation for licensed producers. Chemovar has guided clients worldwide to navigate international regulations surrounding the movement of cannabis genetic material. Ryan recently appeared on Shaping Fire episode 64 about feminized seeds and female-only breeding. Today, we're going to talk about the application of tissue culture techniques in cannabis cultivation. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Welcome back, brother. Thanks so much for having me again, Shango. So man, let's let's start by clarifying what tissue culture really is because I think most folks throw around that term pretty darn loosely. Um, would you give us a quick overview of like the total breadth of the term, but then hone in a bit more on what people in the cannabis industry usually intend when they use the term tissue culture?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think tissue culture is really like an overarching term. It's kind of like saying cultivation. There's so many different ways that you can grow a plant. And and tissue culture is really the same thing. Um, when we say tissue culture, really what we're doing is we're culturing plants or parts of plants in a glass test tube or a, um, some type of plastic or glass sterilized vessel. Um, and we call those pieces of plants explants. Um, I guess a little bit of history might help. Around the, the turn of the 20th century, like the 1900s, um, scientists were starting to learn about bacteria and fungus and how they could grow these things on petri, dish, uh, petri dishes. And uh, I guess a German biologist wondered if he could do the same thing with plants or plant parts. And so he started harvesting leaves and you know cross-sections of stems and, and little bits of cells, and they would take the cells and mash them all up and and create something called a suspension culture and they would see you know like we can grow these very small bacteria and fungi fungi can we also do the same with plant cells and that that brings up a term called uh, totipotency, which really means the ability of any cell to regenerate a whole plant from that one cell
0: Um, is that like stem cells
1: yeah, we have cannabis, or not cannabis, all plants have, uh, they're the equivalent of stem cells. We call them callus, which is really, uh, stem cells are what we call undifferentiated tissue. And usually when we make callus, it's a de-differentiated tissue. And so that means you might have a cell type that was like, for example, here's a perfect example. When you When you make cuttings. the the cells along the stem they're at that point in time they're stem cells i don't mean stem cells (laughs) uh, they're cells of a from the stem of a plant and when we cut those little branches off and expose it to a, a high oxygen high moisture environment like you'd find in a in a rooting puck or a rockwell cube or something that um that encourages the cell to change its cell type and become a root cell. And so when we actually see uh, roots growing out of the side of a cutting, that's de-differentiation. That that cell has differentiated itself from a stem type cell to a root type cell. Um, And so we can can manipulate that process, or we've learned that we can manipulate that process, and we can take very tiny pieces of, of plants, like we can section out just the meristem, which is a, a very small structure in the tip of a, a, a plant shoot that produces the entire plantlet, but that's where all the cell division takes place. Um, and it's about the size of a pin, and you can cut those out and grow them on uh, these agar mediums like we're talking about, and uh, and eventually culture that little piece into a full plant.
0: Is it, is it the DNA of the plant that's driving all of this because the instructions are there in every single cell?
1: Yeah, I, th- I would consider the meristem actually an organ. So it's, an, it's not just the DNA. It's uh, an organized cell type that are dividing uh, in a specific genetic program. Um, so it's, it's probably a little more advanced than just the DNA, thinking of it as just the DNA or a couple of cells. It's actually
0: a, a, an, an actively dividing organ yeah. All right. So, so if we've got this big umbrella, which is tissue culture and, and, you know, over the course of the show, we're going to talk about a bunch of things that are under this umbrella of tissue culture. Um, my, I guess my best understanding of it is that, you know, 80 or 90% of what we're doing in cannabis, as far as tissue culture goes, all falls into the subsection of micropropagation. And then the other 10 or 20% are like all this random things that we're going to talk about mostly in the third set. But, but would you, you know, does, am I getting it right that micropropagation is really what just about everybody in cannabis is talking about when we talk about tissue culture, like off the cuff?
1: Yeah, that's really the focus right now. Uh, I think that serves an industry need um, to be able to produce large amounts of um, virus-free, mold-free, pest-free plants. Um, and, and we can do that using micropropagation. But there's other, other types of things that we can do. And um, there's something called a, a metabolite reactor or a bioreactor. And, uh, you know, at one point in time, scientists were trying to figure out if we could get cannabis cells to produce cannabinoids. Um, you know, without having to actually grow the plant during this crazy prohibition area that we've kind of just graduated from. But, you know, you could do something like you take some leaves off of the plant and chop them up very, very finely using a, a, you know, a delicate blender or some kind of sectioning device. And then you suspend those cells into a big, um, like a big Erlenmeyer flask, one of those big kind of triangle shaped flasks that sits on a, a orbital shaker or a, a spinning shaker. And that just kind of shakes the, 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 the soup broth gently and provides lots of oxygen and these cells just float around in the, in the medium. And the thought was that you know, perhaps we could get these plants to produce, Uh, cannabinoids because that's actually been you're you're able to do that with other plant species but it turned out that of course um, the production of cannabinoids needs the resin the resin glands the trichomes so we actually can't do that Um, but you can you you can use that same technique to grow embryos or produce something called artificial seeds which which are essentially little shoot tips encased in a like an alginate or an agar jelly it looks like a little jelly bean and I'll try to put some of those up on my uh, Instagram page so people can see those while we're we're talking about it. Yeah, but they're just essentially little ways that we can produce different plant parts in in these glass beakers. Um, but like you said, the most common thing in the cannabis industry is to use those to grow plantlets, sterile plantlets, which we can either section by subculturing and multiply them into a whole army of plants.
0: Um, (laughs) Army of plants. I like that. You know, so many of us, we just want to, you know, overgrow, right? Army of plants, bring it on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, the truth is, you know, these large production systems that we're seeing start to be grown all over California, Washington, they require armies of plants. I mean, you plant you know, or, or the grape growers are pretty lucky. They Or even hop growers are pretty lucky. You plant the crop once and then it just keeps growing year after year. Whereas cannabis, I mean, if you're if you're planting or if you're harvesting maybe two times in a summer or three if you're really organized, you know, you need a full complement of plants to be planted every year or every planting. Um, so it really, it, the production of armies of plants will be um, part of this industry. Right?
0: All right, so if we are talking about creating armies of plants as being like the primary usage of tissue culture in cannabis, um, let's focus on this micropropagation because it's it's you know it's what's most everybody's talking about anyway. So this is a strategy to multiply a plant very quickly under very clean controls in a lab, and I mean my understanding of it is essentially cloning, but with exceptionally immature plant material, like at the cell. level, um, cellular level, would you walk us through what that, you know, the science of that, because the, the idea of even, um, handling and manipulating the cells, um, is, you know, one step removed from my understanding. So walk us, walk us through that process.
1: Yeah. So these, these agar containers, we'll call them or tissue culture vessels, um, you, you really have to think of it like a plant in a pot. So just like you're making, you're transplanting any plant into a container, um, the, the tissue culture vessel holds, it, do, it does all the same thing. It's got a place for the plant to grow. It has the medium or the, the sorry, the hormones and the food source, the nutrients that are needed by the plant. Um, we also put some sugar in there and some other hormones that'll help 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 the plant grow as, as it goes along. Um, but it's such a perfect space and a a perfect environment. You gotta, gotta remember when we put a little piece of an explant or a little piece of a plant into that tissue culture medium, there's no roots, right? The plant has just, it's just like a little cutting. So the plant has to be able to be able to absorb everything that it needs from that, um, that jar. And one of the problems is, is that that environment is so suited to growing anything, even even other molds and and bacteria, that if the plant part is not completely sterilized before we put it in the jar, it may bring in a virus or a bacteria or a fungus with it. And that fungus or bacteria will then be able to um, propagate itself much, much more quickly than the the plant part that we've put in there and so that's what we call contamination of the vessel Um, so we have to uh, autoclave these jars at very high temperature and pressure before we put the plant in there it's all sealed up you make your medium you add your hormones and your food and your sugar and that all goes in the jar and then we put it in the pressure cooker and autoclave and that sterilizes the plant medium and so the next step is is cooling that material down and letting the agar harden. And then we use something called a laminar flow hood, which is essentially um, a, a, a very high quality uh, HEPA filter that creates an airflow um, that passes through this filter process. So. Mm-hmm. Any air that comes in contact with the plant has actually had all the fungus and, and viruses and bacteria been removed from the plant. Uh, is is that the, the
0: same kind of hood that I'm talking about with people who are growing psilocybin mushrooms? Very similar. Yeah. yeah, very similar. Same kind of process.
1: Again, the same with the idea is that you want to maintain sterility. Like you really want the only organism that you're putting into the pot is your target. To be, yeah, your target. So either cannabis or, like you said, mushrooms.
0: Before we go case. on, let me let's break down a little bit about this uh, this petri dish. So, so first of all, um, what's what's agar?
1: Agar is like um, it's an extract from seaweed. I mean, if you're walking by the seaside, you can you sometimes you pick up seaside, and they've got these little kind of like jelly balls on them or whatever. Um, it's that kind of thing. So they take it and they, you know, they'll they'll extract it from these these plants, boil it all down and purify it. And really, all of it, all that it does is it gives a matrix. Um, it adds some solidifying. It's a solidifying agent for your liquid. Like we were talking about the bioreactors before, or, or the embryo culture reactors. If you have these little plant parts in sugar water with all the right nutrients and hormones, and the the your solution is actively moving around, so that it's being oxygenated. You can actually grow these plant parts just in the liquid, um, but the agar adds like a, a solid aspect to that. It just solidifies the medium and it kind of makes it more stable. Um, you know, we can the plant can remain upright in in that
0: agar. So, is it kind of like a neutral and inert thing? Absolutely. Okay, yeah, I get it. So it's just they're kind of kind of like to hold shit there. Yep,
1: yeah, it's just mm. it's just a
0: medium. All right. So then you also said that uh in this agar, um you're putting these uh you know tiny plant cuttings. Well, like we've we're already talking about at a cellular level, right? And I, you know, when I make a clone, it's a pretty big cutting. So how small of the cuttings are placed in these petri dishes? Like are we talking about like, you know, an inch that we've cut with a scalpel or are we talking about like a sliver like what how small is small
1: yeah well they they uh, ideally you you want them to be small because the bigger the bigger the plant the more opportunity that we're going to have missed some of um the bacteria or the viruses or the molds in our sterilization process so we want to get down to pretty small just by getting down to a pretty small part like a centimeter you can go that small you can it depends like again we're talking you know we can do all these different types of medium you can actually use pieces of leaf you can use cross sections of stems you can try to do roots Um, or you can grow the meristem like i was talking about or or even the auxiliary bud like you know if you imagine a plant that's growing we've got the shoots coming off the top and then you might have say three leaves coming off uh you know two on one side of the stem and one on the other side and everywhere that a leaf stem or the petiole meets the, the main stem junction, that's, there's a, a, a space where a new branch will grow and any grower knows this. If you, if you watch plants that the leaf, that the, the new shoots always come out between a leaf and the stem. And so that little spot on the, on the crotch of the, you can call it the crotch of the, the plant in between the stem and the shoot that actually has, um, what it was called an auxiliary bud, or a, and that is just the place on the plant where that shoot will grow. And so we can actually, cu- we can actually cut all the, the, the leaves off and, and just plant the node where that piece of the, the shoot will grow. And so there's no, you got to consider, there's no leaves, right? We've cut them all off. And so because there's no leaves, that plant can't harvest CO2 from the air. Right? And so we've put sugar um, into the medium directly because photos- sugar is sugars are the byproduct of photosynthesis. So by putting sugar in the medium, we kind of bypass that photosynthesis step and allow the plant to have access to these, uh, these molecules so they can just incorporate them rather than having to synthesize them themselves.
0: So is that little growth that occurs in the crotch, uh, is, th- is that the meristem?
1: There is a there is a meristem in the axillary bud, yeah. So, so, so define
0: that, would you meristem?
1: The, well, so the meristem is it's kind of like the center of generation for all the plants. Like if you look at the top of a uh, a growing plant where the leaves are growing, and you can you know you can get in there and fold the leaves down and try to get to that most central point. That most central point where everything is growing out of is the meristem. So. Um, you know, it, think of it like a worm. Like I don't know if people have ever heard of this experiment where you can take a worm and cut it in half, and both halves will live. They and they can regenerate their own parts. It's kind of the same with cannabis plant. Anywhere that there's a, an auxiliary or an uh, or a uh, an apical meristem, and the apical meristem is just the one on the very top of the plant. That thing can generate an entire new plant from it. So, kind of think of it like the. The source code, you know what I mean. That's like the
0: is is the central meristemness of the cannabis plant only uh, present in certain parts of the plant, or is it uh, everywhere? Because you know, so, like like you know, I'm not super good at making clones, right? And like you know, I have put a lot of effort into making my cone or my clone uh, cuts you know, right there at the point where the, you know, the new growth of the leaves are on the side. So I'm like, oh, this is supposed to be where all the, the, the new hormones are. And I'm like, really careful. But but are you telling me that, like, most of the plant can be used as a clone in kind of like a random way? Or or are, are these meristems only a few places on the plant?
1: No, anywhere, anywhere that the stem meets a leaf junction, there's going to be a meristem. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, so, but... Using tissue culture, we can actually also get the plant to produce new meristems from other parts of tissues where they don't exist. So, you know, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing, but we can we can take a leaf and grow what we call uh, people might have noticed when you when you're rooting cuttings, for example, they go th- the 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 stem goes through a stage before the roots start growing out where they kind of swell a little bit and they become a, like a little bit of a rough bumpy texture. That's called callus, and callus is kind of the intermediate or what we think of as the the stem cell. It's de-differentiated tissue. It's tissue that's kind of, it it hasn't been genetically destined to do anything, so it can kind of become anything at that point in time. Callus can become a root. It can be encouraged to become a shoot, Um, but you really have to encourage the plant using hormones to do, you know, to guide it down the path that you want it to go through.
0: All right. All right. Cool. Well, thank you for going down that with me. There's one more um, ingredient in those Petri dishes I want to talk about. You said that we're going to add a little sugar. So I'm curious to know, like, what kind of sugar and why sugar? I mean, we use it in compost tea and we talk about that all the time on the show. But, um, you know, in this particular application, why are we using it? So like I said, sugar,
1: you know, sugar is the end result of photosynthesis. Um, light comes in, it hits the cells in the leaf, and there's a whole reaction that happens. But what essentially comes out the other end is sugar. Um, and so we, or is a form of sugar. And so we actually use sucrose. So just go to the grocery store and buy a couple of pounds of sugar. And that gets, you know, it get it's get gets mixed in at like, I can't even remember, it's like a few grams per liter. Um, and, and so essentially we bypass the photosynthesis and we just put the sugar directly into the into the food source and that way the plant has a carbon source. Because, like I said, if you cut off all the leaves and we're just trying to grow a little auxiliary bud from a small piece of stem and there's no leaf, there's no way for the plant to harvest CO2 from the air or the explant to harvest CO2 from the air. That makes sense. And so we kind of bypass that process and put the sugar right into the, into the medium so that the plant can actually suck that up through um, you know, the, the piece of the plant that's in contact with the medium.
0: So you were talking earlier about how, um, like what an opportunity this environment is, right? You're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to try to grow cannabis, you know, plantlets in this thing, but, but it would love to grow fungus and, you know, probably bacteria and anything else that happens to be in the room. Um, what are the, you know, what are the sterile conditions that have to be set and generally how are those made in this tissue culture environment? I'm assuming this is, you know, a tissue culture lab.
1: Yeah, it's all done in a lab, but I think I like to use the the cut finger analogy. So, I mean, if you're out working away in, in the garden or in your shop or whatever and you cut your finger, you get a big old deep gash on your finger. The first thing you do is you run it underwater and take the blood away but you want to sterilize it right you want to clean it up so that there's no bacteria or things that are going to start growing in the cut because our body is you know the inside of your body we've got all these nutrients it's like a perfect place for a bacteria to come and set up home um and and so too is the tissue culture vessel it's kind of the same thing um so we want it to be completely sterile and sterile just means that we've we've killed 100 percent of the bacteria the fungal spores and any viruses or, or any other organisms that might be living in the medium and we do that by we make a big batch of this uh, of our agar and then we pour say 25 milliliters into a small baby food size jar Um, and then those get special lids on them and then we can stack, you know, a whole bunch of those in an autoclave or a pressure cooker. And, um, for anybody that's ever done canning, you know, canned fruits or jams or, or even, you know, different vegetables or whatever that you can can meats, we seal up the lids in these jars and we put, put them in a large container, the, like a pressure cooker that's essentially like a big it's more or less a bomb. It's like a big metal container um, that we heat from the bottom. And we, we put water in the container, obviously. We seal it all up, and then we heat it from the bottom. And the the heating it from the bottom creates a steam inside this big vessel. And so you have all these big, really, locks and tighteners and fasteners that hold the lid down. I mean, it's a serious piece of equipment. And we actually, by by letting the steam build up, it gets to a really high temperature, but the pressure also increases immensely inside this vessel. And, um that is that will actually sterilize anything that's in the jar it kills all the bacteria and it kills all the the funguses fungal spores or anything that are in the medium so that when we take it off uh the stove and we let it cool back down and releasing the ste- the steam from the container those jars can then be taken over to the laminar flow hood you actually take the whole autoclave or the whole, not the whole autoclave, but the whole container over to your laminar flow hood. And we we take the jars out and let them cool in the laminar flow. So once they've come out of this pressurization process, the sterilization process, they only exist in an environment where there's no bacteria
0: so like i don't have a lot of lab experience and this question very well may illustrate that but it kind of sounds to me like this 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 pressure cooker that you're talking about is the exact opposite of of using a vac oven that we use in a lab as well like where the vac oven is you know uh trying to create different different atmosphere by creating a vacuum whereas this is doing the opposite is trying to uh, ultra-pressurize it also to create an unlivable environment. Am I anywhere accurate on that?
1: That's exactly what it does. Oh, it, hot, it, it, hot it, damn. <laughs> it, 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 it creates an unlivable environment. Right on. And so that anything that's gone through the process dies. And then from that point on, it's what we call sterile. And so think of, you know, when, we, when we're talking about the lab, or the, the laminar flow hood, this sterile air environment, think of that literally like a surgical suite or a surgical room. Um, you know, when, when the doctors and the nurses go in to do surgery, they're all gowned up, they've got special gloves on and masks on that are stopping them from breathing, you know, just like we knows about mastering COVID, right? I mean, it's the same process. You want your doctors to have on a mask so that they're not blowing out bacteria into the open patient that's lying in front of them. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of like this, think of, you can kind of think of the sterile, uh, jar as like the patient, right? Anytime you open it. Um, there's a risk that we're going to introduce, again, either a virus, a bacteria, a pest, or or uh, some fungus into it. And we really, this whole process, we want to do in the absence of all those organisms.
0: All right. <clears throat> now that we've established really well, really, really well, what are in these petri dishes, um, let's kind of reorient ourselves. So, So explain how the cannabis industry right now is using uh, this for um, for cultivation. Is is one of these petri dishes going to make a gazillion plantlets and all these like like little tiny ass clones, or is it is is it going to be one petri dish per clone? Uh,
1: no, no, it really won't be one petri dish. Per clone, at the end of the stage, it gets to be that. But so, when we think about it, there's really a few parts to tissue culture. The first part is the sterilization, and then what we go into something called initiation, where we actually put the the sterile piece of plant material into the jar. If you put that plant material into the jar and lit, put the lid on, take it to your sterile culture room. That plant will actually grow inside the jar for say two weeks. Okay, and then after two weeks, you come back along. You can take that plant part or that grown plant part out of the jar under laminar flow, again, in this sterile environment, and you can cut it up into probably two or three or maybe five new shoots and plant each of them again in their own jar. And that's called subculturing, where we actually take one culture vessel, we take it out, divide it into multiple plant parts, and then create five new vessels, okay? In doing that... We've skipped the step of having to sterilize five times those individual plants that are going in. So, the the beauty of subculturing is that you can you, you can mul- you can essentially multiply your plant material without having to go through the initiation process again. Okay, so so if you think of of doing that, one plant goes into the jar two weeks of vegetative growth, we take it out. You've now got a plant that we can cut out five plant parts. Each of those goes into their own individual jar. They can go back into the culture room for another two weeks.
0: And then what comes out is 25 plants. Right? So over... It it reminds me of mothers, right? Just like regular old mothers. Yeah,
1: it is. It's very... In the same way, it is very much like... The mother process, but the, the mothering process is all done in a greenhouse environment or a grower environment and you're subject to bacteria and molds and fungus and anything else that's floating around in the air or what's brought in with, um, you know, the cultivators as they come in and out. Maybe they're bringing bugs in on their clothes. So it's, it's just a different way of doing the same thing. Uh, in a sterile environment and you can imagine the logarithmic curve that you get you know after like I said if you go one to five five to twenty five the next multiplication is 125 the next multiplication is you know we're well over 600 so it 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 really starts to grow exponentially Um, and so that's that's it it takes a period of time I mean you're not gonna you know if you want to plant a million cuttings in a year you have to start today right but it does allow you to hit this critical mass where, the, the, like I said, the multiplication becomes exponential.
0: So, all right. So, if we, we've got this one original plant. Um, for, for lack of vocabulary, I'm going to call this the mother, right? This is the plant that we want to make a bunch of because we want to micro-propagate it, because we're going to fill our field, or our cultivation facility with it, or whatever. Um, you know, I would think that there are some attributes we would want this mother to have. I mean, like, sure, sure, we want it to have a good terpene profile and, and good potency and, all, and all, you know, all the regular stuff we're used to, right? But because we are doing it in the lab and we are doing this sorcery with it, I would think that there are other attributes that we would be looking for in our plant that makes it appropriate for micropropagation. So, so what do we look for in a plant that makes it especially a good candidate for micropropagation?
1: That's <laughs> actually a really good question. And the answer is, is that
0: not, nobody is currently doing that um wait what we, there, the, what, like we don't even know we don't even know what plants make good micropropagation plants
1: no i think so <laughs> so, so, so can, cannabis is a really interesting species in, in many many ways but in one of the ways it's really interesting is that like every single trait that we can consider the in the plant there's usually there's usually almost always a great amount of variation. Like for example, let's just talk about height. You can have tall plants, medium plants, short plants, right? Yielding plants, low me- low yielding, medium yielding, high yielding. Uh, terpene plants, you can have low, low levels of terpenes, high levels of terpenes, cannabinoids, the same thing. So the point that I'm trying to make is that any trait that we can look at in the plant, there's a continuum of performance, right, for that trait. And, and currently, the way that we're doing tissue culture is people are growing cannabis the way they normally do. They're selecting the plants that they want to be ideal um, for their production environment. And then once we've selected the plant, you know, we get our Blue Dream or our cookies or OG comes out of the end of whatever process we're doing to, to select plants. We then take those plants back into the tissue culture system and see how well they, they perform in tissue culture. And we've come to learn over the past 15 or 20 years that there is actually different plants perform either well or poorly in micropropagation, right? Some plants just don't like the process. They want more vitamin B or they want a specific hormone. Um, they just don't grow quickly when you put them in into tissue culture, so it might be in the future that the question of does this plant propagate well under tissue culture is actually a criteria that we use for um selecting individual plants, but currently we're not doing that
0: man i can't I can't think that we're too far off from that you know with the with the in- increased interest in corporate ag and everything and these like crazy huge fields they've got in california now i've got to think that's the future as much as it may not be my flavor
1: yeah well the more listen the more we move <laughs> towards scientists being involved in the selection of plants um these these added characteristics are going to start being looked at before the problem with handing it all over to scientists is they just don't get the culture right i mean you have to it's kind of like you know, if you're making wine, the people that make the best wine in the world, like they consume wine, right? Because they understand the things, they, they understand the processes that go into production that yield quality at, at the end. And we, just the scientists aren't at that point with cannabis where they really, the, the vast majority of the pure scientists that are being brought in to cannabis. I mean, the the, the most successful companies that I see operating in the cannabis space, they have a science Team or a, a group of people that are bringing science to the, the 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 venture, but they're also people from the cannabis community that understand all the important things that go along with you know cannabis production, and it's really the marriage of those two things that that makes the win. Right?
0: Yeah, I don't I don't really want a scientist who has been over in ornamentals. You know, making plants for somebody's freaking landscaping to be making these choices. I want Mean Gene to be making those choices. You know, uh, 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 somebody who I respect because they have done the the propagation and the and the in the sifting in the old ways. Right. I want I want somebody like that, but with this ridiculous science education to be making those choices. And you know, I don't know. There's maybe there's a handful of those people nowadays, but I would guess that those are probably these frickin' lucky kids who are in their early twenties now, who are coming up in this post-prohibition environment, who are going to learn that stuff, and they're going to come up and and they're you know they're pot smokers who also are getting science degrees. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I th- I see plant breeding or plant improvements as really it's not a one-man sport it's a team sport hmm. right and it's kind of one of those situations where it's like it takes teamwork to drape make the dream work <laughs> right like you know it's, it's a cheesy thing but it's like if you could pair you know a mean gene with a really high advanced uh plant scientist that understands Things about plants that maybe me and Gene doesn't understand, or someone like myself doesn't understand, that you can actually, you know, get a lot farther of the synergy between the experience, the two, those two different worlds of experience meeting together or being married together.
0: That's great. I I can already start to imagine the teams that I want to put together now. Um, All right. So we should probably take our first commercial break. Thank you very much, Ryan. Uh, You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabis geneticist, Ryan Lee. With the national hemp program in flux due to stringent THC testing requirements, brothers Seth and Eric Crawford continue to release seeds to hemp farmers that will be legal, no matter how you grow them or when you test them. These new varieties from Oregon CBD seeds have substantial amounts of CBDV, CBGV, CBCV, and THCV while always staying below the 0.3% THC limit and guaranteeing compliant crops for farmers every time. Also, these new varieties cannot be pollinated by your neighbor's uncontrolled pollen or a rogue male in your own crop either. Oregon CBD seeds are non-GMO certified too. Oregon CBD Seeds was founded and funded in 2015 by Seth and Eric, maxing out their personal credit cards without outside investment. They continue to refuse outside investment that would change their company culture. Oregon CBD grows tons of fresh food on their research farms for local food banks, literally tons of food. They also give away tens of thousands of pounds of R&D flour to patients. As their company began to succeed, Seth and Eric started donating money to the cannabis medicine and hemp fiber cause, too, by giving millions of dollars to Oregon State University in order to establish the world's leading cannabis genomics research program. And they treat their employees right. Oregon CBD pays for full health and dental coverage for their employees, a 401k program, and their minimum starting wage is 20 bucks an hour. Plus, everyone shares food from the farms. Seth has been on Shaping Fire a few times to talk about novel cannabinoids. You can check out episodes 25 and 37 on CBD cultivars in the hemp market, episode 66 on triploid cannabis genetics, and the very first Shaping Fire Live, episode 47, with Seth and soil expert Jeff Lowenfels talking about autoflowers. If you are a hemp farmer and you want to grow reliable seeds that are sure to thrive and pass testing, check out OregonCBDSeeds.com to learn more about buying seeds for the 2021 season. That's OregonCBDSeeds.com. Sufficient dissolved oxygen in the root zone is a challenge. Gaia's brand of ultra fine nanobubble systems will help your garden thrive in ways you may not have considered. No matter if you grow in soil, hydroponics, or aquaponics, Gaia's ultra-fine nanobubble systems will increase your dissolved oxygen and increase your yield. Often, the first sign of inadequate oxygen supply to the roots is wilting of the plant under warm conditions and high light levels. Insufficient oxygen results in an accumulation of toxins and an insufficient amount of water and mineral absorption. If oxygen starvation continues, mineral deficiencies will begin to show, roots die back, and plants will become stunted. Healthy roots supplied with sufficient oxygen are able to absorb nutrient ions selectively from the surrounding solution as required. In studies, this has shown a 30% increase in plant growth. Not only do ultrafine oxygen bubbles allow your plants to thrive, but they will keep your drip lines and irrigation pipes and plumbing clean too, because algae, pythium, and other invasive species only survive in low oxygen environments. And the Gaia system only costs about $2 per day to run. Gaia ultrafine oxygen nanobubblers are also great for making compost teas and wildcrafted nutrient teas. The smaller bubbles of truly dissolved oxygen allow more microbes to reproduce faster. Go to Gaia's website at h205.com to learn more about using dissolved oxygen and how to purchase this simple yet amazing technology. That's h205.com. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert Biological Systems has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the U.S. from coast to coast. No matter where you live, Copert Biological Systems can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T.com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check out their Instagram, at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis geneticist, Ryan Lee. So now we have selected our mother plant, we have harvested plantlets, we have incubated and multiplied them in the agar growing medium, let's talk about transitioning them to the garden. So how do we move the plants from the growing solution in these petri dishes to rooting in the soil and becoming plants?
1: Okay, it's a a really good question. I think we should probably walk through the whole process. We've already started the process, but um, there's different phases in tissue culture. And so we we start with our explant, which is the piece of the plant that we've cut off, which is then sterilized and initiated into the tissue culture process or into the jar. That plant then grows. Um, we talked about already the process of multiplying it and subculturing those plant parts again into their own individual jars. And that process kind of goes on over and over and over again until, like I said, we have our army, but at that point in time, we still have a tiny little plant shoot in an agar, uh, medium in the jar with no roots. If we were to take that plant outside and either try to clone it or try to, try to stick it into soil it would just die because again it needs to have that that set of roots on it and so depending on the hormone mixture that we're using in the agar we might have to create a new uh specific mixture or a, a new specific rooting medium and which we plug those just like we do with clones we plug those little pieces those little plant shoots into the rooting medium and over the process of say seven to 14 days just like a clone these things will grow roots um, but again, that little plant part is used to being in its like happy little jar, sterile greenhouse. Um, it hasn't built up the type of protections that it would need to just be taken and put it under a uh, like a thousand watt light or in a greenhouse or something. The plant would just wilt and die. And so we have this process where we take the the rooted plant out. We wash away the the agar medium and we put them into soil and they kind of go through this real babying phase, which we call hardening off. Um, you, you might think of it like the nursery in the hospital where the babies go right when they're born. It's just like a happy, warm little environment with just the right. That's amount a of funny light.
0: idea that the nursery in the hospital is hardening off the humans. Yeah. <laughs> <it is. laughs> so, when, one of the
1: things that happens when we grow these plants in tissue culture, they grow very small, um, and they're just because they don't they don't need a lot of inputs. They're not really harvest. They're pulling sugar from the from the the agar. They're not harvesting it through sunlight and they they're not exposed to wind and all these other things right and so we have plants have when you grow plants in a greenhouse or in a grow room environment it, it, you can actually look tell on the plant they've got something called the waxy cuticle and that waxy cuticle is kind of like a like think of it like an anti-transpiration barrier it stops the plant from just losing all of its water um and so we have to baby these plants in a way and kind of encourage them to to get to toughen up enough to the point where we can actually take them and put in them into the, into a tissue culture or sorry into a standard production environment, and uh, and so that it might be like a warm environment with lots of humidity, right? Um, it's just they don't go. I think the, the important thing to realize is that they don't go from the jar <laughs> to the field, mm-hmm. right? You have to have this intermediate step where this
0: intermediate cut. step is. This still happening in the lab.
1: It's kind of it's like it's kind of in between the lab and the field, right? So it's less.
0: So it's sterile. not. It's not sterile, but it's also not exposed to the elements.
1: Exactly. All right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a really. It's like I said. It's like a nursery. It's like it is. It's it's exactly what it is. A nursery. Right. It's like we want to take these little babies and encourage them to grow up just enough so that when we then take those plants and move them into the production environment, either in a grow room or in a greenhouse, that they can just take off.
0: How big are they physically at this
1: point? It's not really to do with size. I mean, you can do it on very small plants, but you kind of want to do it on what we, you know, stage like three and a half, four plants. They're like, you know, maybe three, four inches tall.
0: So, so in that petri dish, a plant has grown that's about three or four inches long, and that is the size of the plant you're going to take out of the petri dish and put into your soil in this nursery.
1: Yeah, in the later phases of the tissue culture process, I mean, we we might start with baby jars or actually even test tubes, but but you can actually upscale the size of the container, and so they use like those I don't know they're like, you know, 500 gram. Um, yogurt containers—you've probably seen them at like fast or not fast food takeouts, but like a maybe like a slightly higher end, you know, vegetarian takeout. It's like yeah, a yeah. clear, clear polypropylene. So, so they're container. actually
0: like like transplanting. They're potting them up, even in micropropagation in the lab.
1: Yeah, as they get too small, you know, you, if you're growing these little trees. They, 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 they it literally looks like a, a two foot tall bush, but it all happens in the size of a baby jar, a baby food jar, hmm. right? And so, if you want to get, if you want the plant to grow past that size, you you make a bigger jar, right? So that's why we call it, that's why these tissue culture vessels come in various sizes.
0: All right, so um, let's talk one more moment about this waxy cuticle. So, the waxy cuticle, if I understand it correctly, it is preserving like the moisture in the plant and is kind of just kind of protecting it during the hardening off process. Does the waxy cuticle go away during the hardening off process, and is it like reabsorbed into the plant, or does it like fall off and is in the bottom on on the the soil?
1: Sorry, I maybe wasn't clear when I said that. The waxy cuticle is what develops in this hardening off process. So it's actually growing more thick during the, or thicker during the hardening.
0: Oh, off I see. So, so it's like the outer layer. It's the defense. It's the, the outside skin. It's, the skin is toughening up during the hardening off process.
1: Exactly. Oh, and there's, there's actually a product that you used to be able to buy that people would take. I think it was called No Wilt. But it was, a, it was a product that you could actually put on cuttings. And it was kind of like a waxy spray that you'd spray on the plant. And it, it kind of seals the plant up. And it's stop- that's one of the things. right? I mean, when we when we take a cutting off of a branch, cutting off of a plant, you've cut off the way that the plant is going to get access to water, right? Um, and so that's why we use uh, a dome on the clone trays, right? Is it? It maintains that humidity. If we were to take the dome off and put even a, a fan blowing lightly across clones that were freshly planted, they'd all wilt. Because what you're doing is you're encouraging them to transpire all that water out of the plant, and they can't reabsorb enough water to compensate for what they're losing, so they wilt. Mm-hmm. Right, And the idea is that we kind of create this little mini greenhouse with these domes, and that prevents them, it, it
0: holds the water
1: in, it prevents them from, from
0: transpiring so <clears throat> this this the waxy cuticle that's going to grow on the outside this actually reminds me a lot of um wax grafting tape that uh you know after after you you make a graft you you wrap it with this waxy tape that is semi-permeable and but so it closes off the 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 cutting spot for, to disease and a bunch of stuff um it kind of reminds me of the same thing how how it waxes protect, generally protective. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we know that these waxes are all on the plant. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen these big CO2 extractors in the process, uh, but, you know, they actually pull out a large amount of wax in the, in a CO2 run, which is usually why they do that winterization step, right? In the extraction process where they, they take the cannabis oil and they put it in a big vat of, um, or a big, container of of ethanol and then they drop the temperature really really low like well below freezing and what happens is all the waxes in the in the extract they precipitate out of the solution and you can actually filter the waxes away
0: so those waxes though are coming from the trichomes and not the plant material right probably both oh okay yeah. Hmm. All right, so it's it's you know it's it's common in the literature to read that micropropagation produces plants that can be more robust than their traditionally cloned counterparts. Has this been your experience? I think probably what we're seeing I don't know if they would be any
1: more robust than a healthy plant. I think that probably what we're seeing is that some of the plants that are coming out of tissue culture compared to the plants that they came from they might be uh, a little more vigorous but it's probably because the plants that we're comparing them to have had more uh they you know they've i think we're talking about like dudded plants you've heard of these dudded plants right they've got a, a viral or bacterial load like the plant has essentially become infected over years you gotta again remember cannabis plants are annuals so their natural life cycle is to grow and live for a year and then they set seed and the whole life cycle starts again um, which is kind of a way for the plant to shed any bacteria that's growing that's growing in the plant right
0: but if you're if you're growing a 1996 jack herer plant exactly. chances are um it's picked up some garbage along the way <laughs> yeah
1: and that's actually one of the things that we're seeing in tissue culture is that you know there's we've seen some some groups identify like bacteria that are actually living within the cells of the plant or in between the cells of the plant um and and so part of one of the things that you can do in tissue culture is 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 play around and try to actually find a way to kill those bacteria and viruses in the plant.
0: So instead of it being, oh, tissue culture plants are by definition you know, better and more vigorous. It's really like, yeah, it's really about the fact that the preparation that goes into creating a tissue culture mother, you're cleaning up the bacteria and the viruses. So, so you're just making a better plant. It's not necessarily that plants that are grown in Petri dishes are somehow more vigorous.
1: Yeah. I suspect that's what it is. Again, I don't, I can't say that with a hundred percent conclusivity. Um, I think the truth is also is that, you know, while, while, yeah, some of these companies are starting to do tissue culture and cannabis, I, I would say that we're probably three to five years away or maybe even 10 years away from having a completely bulletproof system that is producing perfect plants every time. Hmm.
0: Um, well, in the, in the category of bulletproof, you know, one of the things that people who want to complain about tissue culture will, um, they'll, they'll point out that some cultivars do not grow true to type after they're grown out from tissue culture. Um, is this a failed expression common in cannabis, like the plant? Or is this more or less common in other species? And, and like, what might cause this?
1: Yeah, so that's something called somaclonal variation. Um, somaclonal variation just means the variation that we see due to possible genetic changes in the plant uh, through the tissue culture process. And and we actually know that some of the hom- hormones um, that are used in, in the tissue culture process actually do increase the rate of genetic mutation in these plants. So we might be seeing... Um, genetic changes it, it could also be that we're seeing epigenetic changes um epigenetics is essentially you know it's it's a way that genes are regulated by the environment and so a plant or an organism might go through some organ or, or some environmental insult that changes the way that the dna that their genes are expressed
0: is this like nature versus nurture from high school biology yeah a little
1: bit it's 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 it has it has to do with that for sure
0: so so let's let's hit on that a little bit more then, because I find this interesting. So did you just say that like you know, I mean, I know people are use the term epigenetics a lot, and you know, one of my favorite breeders, modern epigenetics, is making cannabis seeds, but you know the, the word epigenetics, I'm not like super intimate with. Are you suggesting that um, environmental stresses can change the DNA
1: they they change the way the DNA is expressed. And so, yeah, they, like, there's something called DNA methylation. And so, there's these little tags that can be put on a DNA which say, transcribe this gene or don't. So, the DNA itself doesn't really change, but it's what's being altered is the regulation of those genes. And so, epigenetics literally means above genetics or standing upon genetics is really what epigenetics means. And so this is a type of regulation that occurs on the DNA without changing the DNA.
0: Interesting. So so it's kind of like all right, the DNA says do this, but then there's like then there's like an epigenetic post-it note next to it that says yeah, do that, but like don't don't do that a lot or or yeah, do that, but do that a whole bunch.
1: Yeah, I mean, without getting into a whole show on epigenetics, (laughs) I think that that's pretty, like, I think the post-it note is actually, like, a really good way to think about it. You've got your little piece of machinery that comes along, and it reads the DNA, and it encounters the post-it note, and that post-it note is is a little instruction that says, hey, read this DNA a little bit differently.
0: And so the, the, the message that's on the post-it notes, would that be considered somoclonal variation?
1: No, clonal variation is the, it's like the change in the observable, observable phenotype is how I would describe it. So, so the
0: somoclonal variation is the variation from the nurture, not the nature.
1: Exactly. All
0: right. I got
1: that. Yeah, it's, it's the off type. It's the, like I said, it's the way we put known genetics in, and 2% of those plants that come back out look different. Those are somaclonal variants.
0: Yeah, like like you know, getting getting if I if I get genetics up here in the Pacific Northwest that grow totally kick ass in Humboldt and I bring it here and people are like, "Oh, that's not that plant. You can tell by the photograph." And I'm like, "Yeah, well, you know, I got it from Joagrie and it's definitely from Humboldt, but our weather here sucks and so I'm experiencing somoclonal variation."
1: Well, that's yeah, that's really environmental differences Hmm. all right i went went Um, a little too far (laughs) yeah it's it's really the variation that we see coming out of the tissue culture process i I wouldn't try to extrapolate extrapolate it past that but we do know for example there's a there's one chemical that was really used a lot um, in in cannabis tissue culture called thidiazeron or tdz and tdz is known to cause genetic mutations right or at least to increase the frequency of genetic mutations and so by using some of these hormones in the process yeah we can lead to changes um in the plant there there can be changes in the process and that's that's really part of what we want to do is monitor these these types so that we can make sure that as we're cloning you know you don't want to take a, a variant or an off type and then use that to start your whole new subculturing process because everything that every plant that comes from that cell line is going to be changed right and the idea is that we want to be have them being true to type aka blue dream or whatever the variety
0: is right mm-hmm. you want you want to use the plant that is true the truest expression of the genetics that you want exactly right on so this would be a great place for me to ask you about genetic drift because Oh my god all the crazy stuff that is said about genetic drift and people pointing fingers and like you know all the bro science God help us you know people argue a lot about whether or not genetic drift is even a thing so so you know generally people are when they talk about genetic drift they're like okay, you had a mother some time ago let's say let, for the sake of this conversation, let's say that it was five years ago there was this great plant and then you made a, a clone off that mother mother and you grew that up and then you made a clone off that plant and then you made a clone off that plant and you made a... so like now maybe we're like seven or eight or nine clones off of the original plant that was grown from seed and and you know what people normally tell me is like oh there's genetic drift because um, the cutting that you are growing now, nine cuttings later, is so far from the mother. And um, the, the clone that you have now is the same age as that mother was way back nine cuttings ago. And so the, the, the genetics have drifted from the original expression of the seed. Is that a thing? And if so, what's, what's the, what are the mechanics there?
1: yeah those are again so those are what why we call off types Mm -hmm. genetic drift is actually something else genetic drift really means the change in the frequency of the genes in a population from one generation to the next Um, and those typically the frequencies of genes if your population is large enough your breeding population is large enough the frequency of those genes don't really change in the population unless we're exerting some type of selective pressure like you know either through artificial selection by humans or pests or molds or if you use a small breeding population those are the things that can really cause a change in the genetic frequency but that's probably different than what we're talking about it's just the community has started using the wrong term that term genetic drift already has a specific meaning Um, And I think that what the community is really talking about is more results of somaclonal variation or some type of epigenetic regulation that's either happening on the plant or the change in phenotype is being induced by something like the plant has acquired a virus. Right. So it's not it's not really
0: age related. It's not time related. It's because over time, your cuttings of cuttings of cuttings are actually picking up, you know, diseases and viruses and stuff and getting weaker.
1: I think that that's more likely we have shown through the sequencing, you know, that has been done in the last 10 years that that you know clones what we call clones you know on the I don't know if you remember the the Phylos galaxy but they used to have these clone groups yeah right and that's really what we're talking about is like you know if if two people if you got one cutting from Job, Jodri and somebody else got the same cutting from him like 10 years ago and took it to the east coast as those two plants are now they're they're divergent branches on an evolutionary tree right and so they actually may go through little bits of of dna mutation Uh, you know that's that's how um pinot gris and pinot blanc came about right like those those grape varieties actually started as pinot uh, noir and then you know somebody in a in a vineyard in france 300 years after they started growing pinot noir found one group of branch or one group of grapes that was like slightly gray-colored, and it was a it was a white grape, not a red grape anymore, um, and that was just because that one branch produced a mutation, and the mutation was in the in the gene that was responsible for the color of the pigment in the grape, right? And so, when you actually take that, if you cut that branch off and root it, genetically, except for that one mutation, it's the same plant as the Pinot Noir, right? Um, But it has just acquired a mutation that allows it or that has caused it to have a slightly different phenotypic expression.
0: All right. So um, let's, before we go to the commercial break, let's talk about one of the risks that people talk about with this entire process. Because, you know, you you take your original uh, mother plant, shall we say, and um, she is the best expression of the genetics that you want to micro propagate to make your cannabis clone army. And, um, and so then you, you know, go through the process of tissue culture to micropropagate it. And now you've got, you've got, you know, a gazillion of these plants and you're going to put 5,000 of them out in a field or, you know, in a series of warehouses or whatever, you know, one of the things that I like About growing outdoors from seed is that all of my plants are slightly different. So, if I get a pest, if I get crappy weather, if I get a fungus, if I get like whatever my threat is, not all of my plants are gonna be equally susceptible to it. So, like, okay, I might lose some of my plants, but I'm not gonna lose all of my plants because they're like slightly different people, you know? When you do this micropropagation, though, since you're targeting on this very specific expression of the genetics, you know, these 5,000 plantlets that become plants, they're all going to be exactly the same plant, and, you know, yeah, you know, I agree with a lot of folks that like you're like okay, well that might give you a whole bunch of plants that will produce flowers that will look appropriate in the same bag because they look the same, but it also makes them susceptible as hell to all of these pests and you know, I think that that would decrease the the defensive posture of all these plants, making your plant, your, your, your field or warehouse more at risk to everything. Um, How realistic is that concern and, and how do we weigh that?
1: Well, that's, you're talking about monoculture and this is, this is always the risk of monoculture, right? When you grow one genotype in an environment, the possibility always exists that, a pest is going to come in and really love the plant that you're growing on and if that's the case they'll run through it like locusts right i mean they literally will spread the whole way and it's kind of one of the negative aspects that we have in the way that we grow cannabis currently as a monoculture is that we're very susceptible to uh, invasion of pests or even specific molds i mean if something shows up it's going to run through the entire population And really the only way to combat that is to plant some level of heterogeneity or some level of genetic diversity. Um, That it kind of acts as like a a shield or a barrier, you know, to the, the, the mass expansion of the pest, right? If you have a quarter of your production space is a plant that spider mites, for example, don't find very tasty... You know, they're going, to, they're going to stay away from that one plant um, or that one genetic type. And so you can actually kind of create barriers through, throughout your room. You, you create a, a mosaic of different patches of genetics. And uh, you kind of set it up in a randomized way that they, you know, you don't have all your blue dream in one area, for example. So that if, if it gets contaminated, it's just going to run through them, right? right.
0: All right, but yeah, it's, it's this a is a good... <clears throat> I, my follow up is really freaking specific, so I hope I can get us all the way there so here so so you said that we want to decrease the risk of the monoculture by creating this mosaic with different genetics, and so my question is, is this mosaic of different genetics all cannabis plants so like. You know, to use your example, plant one is a, a blue dream, but then plant two would be Skittles, and then plant three would be wedding cake or whatever. And and then and then like when you know plant five would be blue dream again. So that plants two, three, and four have got different genetics and may not be as attractive to to whatever the pest or, or fungus is that's attacking plant one. Now, do you mean that, or we talk a ton about polyculture on this show because I'm a big fan of um, you know planting cannabis plants alongside other plants like comfrey or whatever, and because those plants might might attract the pests or repel the pests um, because of their terpene profile depending on the nature of the plant so are you saying that that You know, the better solution for monoculture as we've been talking about it now is to produce, is to plant, you know, five or more different types of cannabis plants, but interweave them? Or are you saying, no, 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 you can actually do a whole field of one variety of cannabis plant, but then we want to solve it with all these different um, species of plants?
1: You can do it both ways. I think for the context of this discussion, I mean, it, it's more about planting different types of cannabis. I wouldn't intersperse them plant by plant. That's just not an efficient way to either plant or grow or track, you know, through production. You might do blocks of, say, you know, whatever, 20 by 20 or 100 by 100 mm. um, of one genetic type. And then you, you, you rotate your blocks Right, um in in a in a completely integrated system, I think that we're gonna to start to see more farms, more small farms that aren't just growing cannabis, that they're adding cannabis as a value added product to their production of what they can grow on their farm. I mean, they'll grow their blueberries and their garlic or whatever flowers they're gonna grow, and then like a little bit of cannabis that helps with the bills. Um, and I see that the future of cannabis being really integrated into more of a holistic system a holistic production system. Um, one step less advanced though, is even in a cannabis grow is if you're say you're growing five varieties, that you don't just have one big block of each of those five varieties, that you have many blocks of those different varieties interspersed.
0: Yeah, you know, that idea of growing your blueberries or whatever and then cannabis around it was what I really thought we were signing up for when we started going down this legalization path. In my head, cannabis was going to save the family farm, you know, because you could take the, the sales pressure off of the vegetables or the fruit that has to be harvested at a very specific time and brought to market there's so much pressure on the family farm for these these you know smaller margin plants for food i love the idea of like oh you know, do a row of your your fruit tree and then a row of your cannabis plant right and then the the cannabis plant can make sure that the mortgage is paid and then you can make a you know a good profit but at a lower margin off of whatever your food plant is and we save the family farm but you know unfortunately like no states are are encouraging that with their regulations and I think that it's I think it's a disappointment
1: yeah we're allowing it a little bit up here in Canada and I've seen a few um, smaller farms try to integrate cannabis unfortunately they don't do it in a professional enough way like you really you, you know growers know what they're doing at this point in time but I think that like as an industry we're still in the very nascent you know we're in the nascent stage where you know, we're trying out big, large public companies, and they're not really working out because they just produce a bunch of garbage. It's hard to to maintain that level of quality when you scale it, yeah. right? And I think that there is going to be a sweet spot, but you the smaller family farms also need to learn how to integrate that information in, um, and it's actually something that you know, Oregon and, and Southern Washington, even Northern California. There's there there's some people that are really doing it right. Um, but I think that it's going to be a learned experience that, that people need to learn how to integrate yeah. s- a good amount of cannabis, not a small amount. I'm not talking like a small amount, but a reasonable amount um, of cannabis that they can grow. They can maintain the level of care and attention that re- is required to produce a crop of the, of that level of quality. Because again, you can't in today's market, you can't just produce a bunch of average bud and expect to get a decent paycheck for it on the market. I mean, there's just way too many people growing cannabis and the stuff that gets turned into THC distillate, you know, it doesn't really matter what it looks like because again, you're just going in for that one compound. It's kind of like, you know, farming for high fructose corn sugar, right? Um, But I think that we all recognize that the people that really consume cannabis and are passionate about cannabis th- those aren't the products that they want to consume right they want to consume either really high quality flowers or extracts made from really high quality flowers
0: yeah the o- <clears throat> the only time i've ever seen the interplanting of real food crops and real high quality cannabis in the way, the kind of ideal way that you're talking about is when I visited Happy Day Farms, Casey and Amber down in Mendocino. They actually do that, but it takes so much work, and they've only got a few acres of it. But um, you know, I, I know that they're a small craft farm, and they're they're probably not interested in scaling up to you know, you know, mega. Acreage levels, but but that's what I would like to see. You know, like where you have acres of of beautiful ca- cannabis plants alongside beautiful food, and we can feed everybody and get stoned at the same time while resisting pests and viruses. But I, I don't I don't think we're there yet.
1: Well, and I don't think the small farmers are there
0: yet. I mean, running a farm, even a
1: couple acres of any crop, it's it's there's a lot of work there. And, and some crops are more forgiving than others, but I don't think that cannabis is very forgiving in terms of, it's like you said earlier, like, when it needs to be harvested, it needs to be harvested. You know, you can't just put it off a week or cut it a week earlier and, and expect that it's going to maintain that same level of, of quality, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to juggle those acre-sized balls in the air and keep everything humming. You know
0: Yeah, for sure. All right, so we're going to go to commercial, but stay with us. When we come back, we're going to start talking about the other aspects of tissue culture. We've already covered micropropagation very seriously, but there you know there are a good five or six other things that are included with tissue culture, and we're going to do that after the break. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabis geneticist Ryan Lee. Sometimes the topics I want to share with you are far too brief for an entire Shaping Fire episode. In those instances, I post them to Instagram. I invite you to follow my two Instagram profiles and participate online. The Shaping Fire Instagram has follow-up posts to Shaping Fire episodes, growing and processing best practices, product trials, and, of course, gorgeous flower photos. The Shango Lose Instagram follows my travels on cannabis garden tours, my successes and failures in my own garden, insights and best practices from personal grows everywhere, and always gorgeous flower photos. On both profiles, the emphasis is on sharing what I've learned in a way that you can replicate it in your own garden, your own hash lab, or for your own cannabinopathic health. So, I encourage you to follow at Shaping Fire and at Shango and join our online community on Instagram. As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You've got so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into your marketing as deeply as you'd like. You know there's more that you could do to reach out to new customers and encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time for it, and you're not ready to hire somebody full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. At Blunt Branding, Kirsten Nelson and her team are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty, but they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility, but that's pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and her team will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, whether it be online or a storefront, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. Now, if you happen to be a new cannabis company or an established company moving from medical to adult use in your state, Kirsten especially can help you. Not only is she well-versed in marketing and finance, but she totally gets cannabis, whole plant medicine, terpenes, heritage farmers, and the particular needs of startups. Check out what she did recently for Moontime Medicinals in Humboldt at Moontimemedicinals.com. Kirsten and her team put together a whole brand package for them, built their website, and wrote their sales materials. No doubt, this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on five projects now for various of their clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal instead of just making a pretty logo. Similarly, every single friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me, and that just does not happen every day. Grab a pen and paper, because the website address is coming up. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology solutions in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash blunt branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our newsletter. Blunt Branding. Marketing that makes you money after you've caught up on the latest shaping fire episodes do you sometimes wish there was more cannabis education available to learn well we got you shaping fire has a fabulous youtube channel with content not found on the podcast when i attend conventions to speak or moderate panels i always record them and bring the content home for you to watch the shango los youtube channel has world-class speakers including zoe sigmund's lecture understanding your endocannabinoid system kevin jodry of wonderland nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile frenchy cannolis lost Art of the Hashishan presentation. Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing. Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world. Eric Vlosky and Josh Rutherford on solventless extraction. And Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system too. While there, be sure to check out the three 10-part Shaping Fire Sessions series, one with Kevin Jodry, one with Dr. Ethan Russo, and one with Jeff Lowenfels. And even my own presentations on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business, even though the risks are so high. As of today, there's over 200 videos that you can check out for free. So go to youtube.com forward slash Los, or click on the link in the newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis geneticist Ryan Lee. So we have reviewed how tissue culture can be put to work multiplying plants. But sometimes before a plant can be multiplied, it needs to be cleaned up. Um, we've talked earlier about removing these viruses and bacteria and different things that might be in it that kind of weighs down the plant over the years. But we haven't really talked about a lot about um, how that's done. So, so, Ryan, at what point in the process would we put the target plant through a PCR test to see how contaminated it might be?
1: well really it's something that we probably want to do repeatedly and over you know at, at different points throughout the tissue culture process um and that's really how we we go about certifying something as pest fungus or virus free right we we test them we prove that there's no um that these organisms aren't in the plant and 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 that's how we certify them just to clarify how PCR does that PCR is a technique for multiplying specific genetic markers And so, for example, you know, powdery mildew has a genetic sequence that's unique to powdery mildew, and so do spider mites and every virus. You know, COVID. We all know that the COVID these COVID uh, plants can be uh, identified through specific genetic sequencing. So we can we can kind of do the same thing with like the hops latent viroid or any of these other viruses that are affecting cannabis. We can look for we can look and try to amplify these specific genes from those species and if we don't show if those if those pieces of dna aren't amplified we can't multiply them then we can say that those organisms are absent from the you know from the population
0: so it's like turning up the volume of a song so that you can hear the instrumentation but you turn it up and you're like yep yeah, i i really don't hear a triangle in that and then and so then you can certify it's triangle free
1: Yeah, it's a great analogy, in fact, because, you know, those, those things are just a genetic signal. And that's what PCR does is it amplifies that genetic signal. And so if the signal is free if we're free from the signal then we're also free from the organism that creates the signal.
0: All right. So so after we've put this these plants into the PCR and we've turned up the volume so that we can hear all these different signals very clearly and and we go like uh-oh, we hear the signal for I don't know powdery mildew. Um how do you go into the plant and separate these these uh, pollutants
1: out well let's I'm not exactly sure how you would do it with powdery mildew you'd probably have to use a chemical that suppresses powdery mildew but let's what's a better example example, then let's let's use a virus Um, and so you know like the, the hops latent virus for example you know when 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 humans get infected by a virus one of the things that happens is we get a fever Right. And the reason that your body has learned to give it to to raise your core temperature is that viruses or or at least a subset of viruses don't actually do very well. Um, They don't replicate well. They're not very happy when the temperature is higher than, you know, 37 degrees Celsius or whatever the the ideal human temperature is. Right. Um, So your body ramps up the temperature turns up the thermostat you get really hot and sweaty and you you know you maybe develop a fever but it's actually giving your body's um just create your body's creating a system where your immune system is going to be uh tougher than the virus that it's fighting at that point in time and it'll it gives it a chance to kind of take over so if we apply that same logic to um to plants Imagine as a plant cell is growing, you've got the meristem, and so the meristem's producing new cells. That new cell is initially born without any viruses in it, and then the virus moves in afterwards, okay? And so if you can actually grow a plant in a raised temperature condition, as new cells are created, if the temperature is high, the virus can't actually infect those cells, because it's at a disadvantage, because the envir- the, the, the environmental temperature is high. And so you might have a little section of the plant where the whole tip of the plant becomes virus-free because it's growing in a high temperature environment and the viruses aren't able to take over. And so if you were able to go in at that point and cut out the new healthy unvirus, the the, the cells that hadn't been infected by, by a virus and you subculture them and plant them on their own, you know, their own agar plate, grow them for two to three weeks, again, monitor them with a PCR test to see if the virus is there. And if it is, you just go through the process again. But after a series of subcultures, theoretically, you're able to get a group of cells that are true to the plant type, but free from virus infection. And if that plant, the plant that grows from those cells, then becomes your new starting line, you've now actually removed the viruses from your plant line.
0: I had it all wrong, man. I like I wasn't even close. I was like I I, I can see how novice or amateur my picture was, but I was literally picturing the lab scientist there with a scalpel cutting around the virus, you know, so that it's well, in not a, in the cutting.
1: But in a, in a way, they're doing that, but it's just that you're using the temperature to create the barrier for the virus, right? Another way to do it, you might, I mean, if it was a bacteria, you might put, like, antibiotics on the growth medium, for example, right? So you're creating a chemical situation in the in the medium and thus in the plant where the bacteria can't grow right and then you go and you do the same thing right
0: so 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 after you run it through the PCR and you you've turned up the volume and you can see all the crap that your plant's got then you create a strategy for like okay what are the different steps we're going to do to this plant to allow new growth to be uh contaminant free so maybe you know you know you you have to turn up the heat for a while to get rid of a virus and then maybe you need to douse it with some kind of you know organic chemical to get rid of something else and like maybe maybe it's a three or four step process but in the end you are getting new growth that is free of these contaminants
1: that's exactly it yeah, and then and that's you know what a that's pain always, in the ass it really is. But I mean, hop latent virus is also a pain in the ass, right? I mean, it completely devastates your production space. So um, or broad mites or anything, any of these types of pests that you can go through. So it, you can think about it. We can get down to this very small little world inside a jar where we add maybe just a very little bit of pesticide or fungicide, um, and and those cells then grow out of that. It's a lot different than having taken a a whole big, tall plant and soaked it down with, you know, five liters of pesticide, right? Yeah, and have to get that whole
0: plant clean when you're only trying to get a little cutting to put in your Petri dish exactly
1: right and there's less environmental damage because again you've you've released like maybe two three microliters worth of pesticide as opposed to you know 500 milliliters all right right? so
0: earlier i thought you misspoke when you said that we're you're talking about the things that we were going to you know remove from the plant like we talked about the virus earlier said spider mites and now you just said i think you said russets but um like I thought that the, the, these, these pests are coming from the outside of the plant. The plant attracts them. Are you telling me that there are things within the plant that is making them either attract or more susceptible to these, these pests?
1: Yeah. I, so typically, insects should be removed during surface sterilization. Um, and so that's really like the, when we go through that sterilization part, where before we put the plant into the jar for the first time, you know, we might cut it, cut out a little stem section, and you know, we use like bleach. It's like you'll create like a ten, fifteen percent bleach solution, and just shake your little plant parts in the bleach for fifteen minutes. Oh, wow. Well, it, it's like really hard on the plant material, right? I mean, when you when you take it out, there's all this dead plant material that you actually have to cut away before you. Um, you section out the part of the plant that you want to try to live. But that's what we're doing is we're really, and they use all sorts of nasty stuff. I mean, they use like, you know, mercury compounds and all sorts of little different poisons um, to do that initial sterilization process. And that's kind of one of the reasons you don't want to keep reinitializing plants, right? It's because you're always introducing them into into this chemical. Ideally, they go through a short chemical insult. And then what comes out from that is your starter culture material, right?
0: So you could find yourself in a situation that a plant's got so much pollutant in it where you're like, man, I don't know if it's going to be able to live through like four or five of these treatments to get rid of all the crap. And like, I guess that's where the artisan and expert level comes on where you can where you can expose a plant to these various things and actually have it like living on the far side.
1: Yeah. You have to have a strategy to it. Like again, you know, if a plant's really weak and like really hurting, it's almost dead. That's probably not a great candidate plant for tissue culture, but you know, there are certain forms of tissue culture where you can do essentially what's like, you know, what's called rescue. And you, you can, you know, by shedding the plant, the, the tips, shoots of those plant from the rest of the call it carcass right the infected parts of the plant you're actually freeing it from that disease um but yeah it's a targeted approach and it has to be done with care and attention
0: so i i know that with all the variabilities this next question isn't really fair but i want to talk about cost um, so this all sounds incredibly expensive. Um, let's say that, that you, you know, let's say that, I, I don't know what's typical, but, but I'm just going to assume for a second that a plant you need to clean up before you can micro propagate it is going to have like, yo, know, let's say that there's a virus and a, and a fungus in there somewhere. And you're like, okay, we need to, clean you know, we, we found these in the PCR. We need to clean these up so that we get a nice clean cut so that we can micro propagate it. So to take us, from the, the the PCR analysis through the cleaning it up so that we have our one set of mother platelets that we're then going to micropropagate. Like, can you just give me a ballpark figure about what it's going to cost to get us through the cleanup stage? Yeah, I don't know what it would actually
1: cost in terms of reagent materials to do it yourself, but I know that um there's companies both in canada the united states that will that will do this for you now and i've heard quotes from anywhere of five thousand to twenty five thousand dollars per per genotype so you know if you have a cutting of blue dream and a cutting of cookies that you want to have this process done to it's you know minimum ten grand kind of thing for both
0: Right on cool. And, that gives and, and, me a general and, and, idea.
1: Yeah, and it can go up from there. You know what I mean? Like again, if you if these people are offering services to these public trading companies, it's gonna be closer to
0: twenty-five. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, I get you. Um all right, cool. Well then let's let's bring this episode home. You know, we've spent the most of the show talking about micropropagation because that is what ninety percent of the cannabis industry is doing under this this umbrella. Of tissue culture. But we know that there's other cool stuff that is under this tissue culture umbrella that's only being dabbled in in cannabis right now, um, even though it is incredibly common with like food and ornamental crops. So, um, you know, you had mentioned in our, our, in you know, in a previous answer, the issue of totipotency, the the idea that plants have stem cells, and these stem cells can become any other part of the plant. Using this knowledge, there are a few other more rare tissue culture applications that we're not going to go into deeply in this show. But you know, any anybody who's still listening, right, <laughs> it probably actually cares about this, right? So, would you go into um, a few of these different applications that fall under the tissue culture umbrella so that like when we end the show, people are like, okay, I understand the micropropagation that makes up 90% of tissue culture, but I also understand kind of topically or tangentially these other areas that are also under the tissue culture umbrella
1: yeah well there's some really neat stuff i mean tissue culture is just a great way to to kind of ship plants around the world and store them you know for long term uh we have what we call ex situ storage of germplasm so you know they might go into a forest and find a very rare plant and then you can take a cutting of that plant and bring it back and keep it alive uh under tissue culture I bet you that I bet you people are smuggling plants that way too. Absolutely. Well, we'll get to that one. (laughs) one. But I think the first really cool one that I think that we're going to start seeing more of is something called a process called cryopreservation. And so, cryopreservation is exactly what it sounds like. It's like you know, on the what's it, Futurama? They had the frozen heads, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's that same kind of thing. Well, you can take like a very small shoot tip. And you can subject it to a freezing process again. You load the plant up with sugar and these anti-osmotic if you've, if you've ever seen ice form under under a, um, a Microscope for example, you see it start what starts off as a clear liquid and then you get these crystals growing in the in the liquid as it turns to ice and if you imagine that process happening in a cell the, those ice crystals will actually grow and they'll pierce right through the cell wall. Okay, so as soon as you stab the cell wall with like an ice crystal or a needle or whatever, the cell's done, right? Like it's going to leak all of its contents out, and it just it's it just can't take that kind of insult. But if you do it properly, you can actually get um, you can you can do something called vitrification. Whereas, think of it like. The life in that cell, that cell going from an animated, alive state, to completely frozen, into a glass-like state, immediately,
0: and when you so it just you, happens faster.
1: It happens incredibly fast, and it happens through a, sp- a very specific process of dropping the temperature, um, in a in a very specific and quick way. And if you can actually get that um, that vitrification to happen. Think of it like trying to walk through the mud, okay, or, or walk through cement. You got, like, rubber boots on up to your knees, and you're trying to walk through, like, um, some freshly laid cement. Like, it gets stuck, right? And if, if, if you got stuck in there and you really tried to, like, really force moving your leg, like, you might actually break your leg, right? Um, whereas if you were frozen solid, you're not going to break anything because you're not moving. Mm-hmm. Right, so if you can actually get a cell or a group of cells to undergo this vitrification process from essentially live to completely frozen, like in a split second, that you that's called vitrification. And it turns out that if you can actually freeze life till at, at that speed and size, we can then store whatever biological materials you have at like. You know minus 100 120 degrees Um, they do it in like a liquid nitrogen They, they have these special containers that hold liquid nitrogen and say the bottom third is filled up with liquid nitrogen and the top third is the gas that's coming off that liquid nitrogen which is still very very cold it's not as cold as the liquid but that gaseous phase that fills up the top part of the container is cold enough where you can actually store biological samples for you know an extended period of time say indefinitely right and as long as the temperature doesn't change those those biological samples are safe you can then take those things and reanimate them and grow plantlets from those shoot tips that you've you've frozen under cryopreservation and so um it's a difficult process it's we've only just figured out how to do it with cannabis um, but it's, it's been typically done in other species, you know, uh, pine trees and all, all sorts of trees that they use for forestry and hops. There's a place in Oregon, Hops Research Center is doing all this kind of stuff with hops as well. Um, but you can imagine, I mean, anybody that's a grower and collects, you know, special plants from all over, you know, you, you learn pretty quickly that it's like, you know, keeping 50 different genetic types and having to like grow them and take cuttings and cycle them like that's a real process and it takes a lot of time and energy and resources. If you could just submit those things to a, a, a frozen gene bag knowing that you could then go and pull those plants out of cryopreservation and yeah that process to pull them out of cryopreservation it takes like six months Mm -hmm. right until you're you've got a cutting back in your hand but if you think of like the, the space saving and the time saving and the, the, the resource saving that happens, if you can cry, and preserve these plants, I mean, it's pretty, it's something pretty special. Yeah.
0: Especially, I mean, just, just keeping a regular mother library is a big difficulty. I mean, my God, I can't imagine if you were trying to, you know, take a snapshot of all the hype strains right now. And like, we're going to preserve them all for the future. It's like, Oh my God. Yeah. But
1: you could preserve them all in a, in a, you know, in like a, a small 50-pound doer, right? Like in a small, <laughs> like a, it's about the size of a propane barbecue tank, right? That you could probably store oh, wow. two or 300 cell lines in there, like no problem. Um, so that's, that's pretty attractive. And as a breeder, you know, if you're doing selections, it's also a very attractive thing to be able to do that. Okay. Um, the next step, I think the next one I think I will mention is something, a concept called artificial seeds. And that's really like a very small shoot tip, call it like, you know, three or four eighths of an inch, uh, maybe half half an inch, and that gets embedded into a little jelly matrix um, and hardened in a in a solution of calcium carbonate, and it's like a little mini tissue culture shoot in a seed. Like you know, it's not, it doesn't look like a seed; it looks more like a jelly bean. Um, but those artificial seeds again can generate a full plant, and you can think about how easy it would be to ship a small piece of plant material the size of a jelly bean around the world. I mean, you know you get on a plane with a handful of them in your pocket, and you could pretty much go anywhere right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so those are those are another interesting little thing there's something called embryo rescue people might have read in the newspaper you know so these Russian scientists found a a thirty year old seed in a um I'm not sure if it was an ice core or it was thawing out of a uh, out of a melting glacier, but they collected these thirty. Year you old, probably don't 30, mean
0: thirty year old. You probably mean more like thirty. Sorry, thirty thousand. Thirty thousand. All right, because as soon as yeah. you said glacier, I'm like, yeah, I think it means more than thirty. Oh no, yeah, yeah, my mistake. Sorry, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. misspoke. But yeah, thirty thirty thousand year old seeds, and they actually were able to grow these things back into into plants, and it it took some doing, but yeah, this this idea of being able to take seeds and, and baby them, you know, a seed, planting a seed is, you know, it's, they're they're tough. But again, you know, when you have a 30,000 year old seed, you really have to baby it and make sure all the conditions are perfect. And, you know, tissue culture is kind of one of those, one of those. Ways that you could do that.
0: I can't. I can't even get seeds to pop from 1978. (laughs) You know, let alone
1: 30,000 years. Yeah, those are all possible candidates. You know, I mean, once a seed is dead, it's dead. But if it's stored properly, you know, sometimes you have like a lot of the what the seed is is it's um, part of the test is actually just food source for the seed. That's why you can plant the seed in the ground and they'll grow to like two sets of um, leaves
0: all really eating the food that's in in the seed already i've never actually heard the term dead seed before so what is actually do you mean from that i mean just based on what you were just saying about food does that mean that the food that was contained within the seed that keeps it virile has all been used and therefore you have got genetic material with no food in the seed and that is therefore called a dead seed
1: it's not really that it's Used, it's probably that, you know, we're talking a 30,000 year old seed. It might be that the starches or whatever the compounds or sugars that are in the plant have broken down due to whatever it could be a fungus or whatever but yeah within a seed there's a very t- tiny little embryo right and so that embryo could, could theoretically be cut out and provided with all the nutrients and vitamins that it's needed and hormones a typical, needed.
0: a typical cannabis seed that's let's say that somebody's got their typical cannabis seed uh, let's go old school and saved in a 35 millimeter film container right because that's how they used to be how many years do you think that seed is going to go before it's air quotes dead
1: well it's that's really a tough thing to say if you if you store a cannabis seed it's properly dried it's packed with a desiccant something that's going to absorb the moisture you can put those seeds into a fridge and we're pulling seeds out that are like 25 years old and still germinating at like 85 90 percent
0: oh wow
1: right um and listen like i said earlier that also varies by type like some genetic lines are they don't last that long and some will probably last longer and my personal hypothesis is that it has something to do with the oil content that's in the seed um, before it goes through that process but whatever it is it's just another trait that varies right that shows variation so um, yeah the the question about it being in a, a container is really what, what was the temperature and what was the humidity that those that it was subject to right like like I said if you if you put it in a four degrees Celsius fridge for you know 20 years they're gonna be fine um, if it's in like, uh, a 35 millimeter film camera in your attic in your attic or your trunk or your car or whatever like your odds are going to go way down pretty
0: quick which is probably why these seeds that we're getting to pop after these thousands of years are coming out of freaking tombs
1: yeah exactly yeah. yeah exactly they were in like a, a one environment that was stable for that long yeah um, so that's so that's really cool um, there's also something called uh, anther culture um, where we we grow what you you think about when a male plant or even a feminized reverse plant uh plants a female plant sprayed with sts so that it's making male flowers those male flowers are um you know they go through a process until they drop the pollen and say that takes 30 days right so you can actually cut those branches off at like 15 days for example and go into the the forming male flowers and within those flowers there's the cells that are growing to become pollen grains you can actually culture those cells at that stage and and try to culture them and in rare circumstances um if you've done everything right you can actually grow the the pollen or the pre pollen grain grain cells into a plantlet um and we can subject those things to a a chemical called colchicine and colchicine effectively doubles the chromosome number and so you can imagine that a pollen grain like sperm or you know uh, um, an egg in a, a a female in the female reproductive system context of an egg when those things come together they actually in you know in cannabis when they come together we get two sets of 10 chromosomes so the, so each the sperm and the egg only have one copy of the 10 chromosomes and so that's called haploid that's like a essentially you need to have two halves to make the whole that when they come together in the new organism that that new organism has a complete genetic set and so we can grow these plants that have half the set Double the chromosome number, and now we've have a plant that is 100% true breeding for all traits, right? And so
0: that's those are called dihaps. Or that's dihaps. some mad scientist shit right there. It's it's serious mad
1: science and stuff. But this is these are the techniques that they use in like corn and wheat breeding to create seed lines where all of the seeds, you know, you can plant a hundred like a a thousand acres and every single plant looks the same
0: do you know anybody who's doing this in cannabis now yeah there's people there's a couple of groups that are working on. so so this is happening wow that's some hard hardcore science
1: yeah and you can again
0: like you know you
1: can if you can figure out the process to grow these pre-pollen grains into plantlets and you can say get a thousand of them you can then go in and subject those thousand plants to genetic screening and find the ones that are really ideal right um, so that's all really interesting future stuff that's coming uh, th- towards cannabis that'll be that'll really exceed our breeding. And the last real thing I think that's that's probably interesting to talk about is the concept of somatic embryogenesis. And so embryogenesis is like, you can think of the word, the genesis of an embryo. It's the process of creating embryos. And so the somatic part of that word means it comes from the body of the plant and so you can actually take imagine you could take for example your favorite plant doesn't matter what it is called skittles you take your skittles plant you encourage those um that plant to grow callus and that callus callus can then be coaxed into like a pre-embryonic cell state okay and when once we have those cells those cells can be grown and multiplied on mass Quantities and then divided into little groups or clumps, and those individual clumps can then be coaxed into embryos. And so, essentially, what you have at the end of that process is, say, ten thousand embryos that all came from your Skittles plant, right? But they're what we call bipolar. They have a a top shoot that goes like a, a top meristem that grows skyward, and they have the root meristem that grows towards the the soil. Right, whereas in the context of the tissue cultures that we were talking before, you know, we had to actually put them through a separate process to get that uh, root meristem to grow. Right, so they were really unipolar at that stage; they were only growing skyward. Right, and so having a plant part that will grow a shoot and a root, it really makes things easy for automation because the plant's ready to just do what it does normally, as, it, as if it were a normal seed. Right, so think of it like. Having a hundred thousand seeds that are all twins,
0: and and do they have the virility that you know? Like when when we when we normally say we're going to grow from seeds, most people say like, yeah, the, the a plant from a seed is going to be more energetic and more virile than a cutting. Are these going to have that that oomph that you get from a seed?
1: Yeah, because again, part of that umph comes from the having the tap root that grows straight down and it taps down into the soil and goes searching for the water table. Whereas clones, you know, when we have clones, they're coming out sideways. So the roots kind of, they don't tap, they don't, they don't seem to tap down as much. They kind of, they kind of grow more along the surface of the soil. Um, And so there really is something about having that tap root that drives straight down into the soil um, that has to do with vigor,
0: right? Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm kind of glad that we focused on micropropagation as the major umbrella, because I don't think I would have been able to follow you uh, in a conversation with these five things that you just laid out. This is like some serious science. And I don't, you know... Like, you know, there are some good people that have got capital that are probably doing these things. But this really sounds like like mega, ag, you know, mega ag companies that will be doing this stuff.
1: Yeah, I think probably. I mean, you know, someone like me, Mr. Mean Green, I mean, he could go and do this with a university lab and partner with someone like that. Mm. So there's there are definitely ways to do it. Um
0: I like you interjecting hope in there. I like that. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Well, we, you know, none of this stuff is beyond the community. I think that that we've kind of felt, you know, especially in growing out of prohibition, that it's always been like us versus these big corporations. But there are there are opportunities for people to go. You know, it's rather than being acquired by those guys, why not go? and find ways that we can partner with them right so it's not like it's it's more of an equal relationship not one of being told what we're going to do and when right it's like hey look we have all these unique genetic resources can we partner with people that have knowledge of how to do these techniques so that we can
0: advance the species that's a beautiful summary. I appreciate your you uh, ending this on a, on a good note. This idea of of partnering with scientists and laboratories where we're on equal footing uh, pleases me extensively more than the idea of this idea of, of, of us having to defend ourselves because big ag is just going to come and steal all of our good stuff. I, I like this idea of, of we who have been in the scene for 10 or 20 years or whatever, um, we just go directly to scientists who who smoke weed and say all right let's get together and let's let's use your let's use your academic knowledge and then you know um our ability to smell flowers and determine terpene profiles that cause joy and then let's work together and you know do it ourselves uh, before the genetics get taken and patented by somebody who doesn't have our best interest at heart
1: yeah we we, it's all in our hands to do it's just you know being able to envision a way to make it happen and i think that as we move into this more legal world there is a lot of opportunity for collaboration and the truth is these scientists they're not i think the most of the people that are really truly interested in the science they're not out to get rich they're out to change the world through breeding plants and, and you know making these species into things that are really valuable tools for humans right and um you know the somatic embryogenesis is maybe is a little more of a dream, but the dihaploid breeding and and using um, anthraculture these things are they're standard methods that are used in other crop species other major crop species and there's there's no reason we can't use those same technologies in cannabis.
0: Well, that's a really positive note for us to end on, Ryan. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your your vast experience and your time and your friendship with us. Um, you know your your um, the reaction to your your last visit with us was just like so positive. I got all these posi- or these private messages. They're like, you had Chimera on the show. Hell yeah! You know, like you are um, you are a unique person in our scene, and I appreciate your your willingness and your ability to explain some of these really hard ideas in layman's terms so that the rest of us can follow along with you so i appreciate your 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 interest and your willingness to join me
1: i appreciate you give me the venue to share the knowledge so that it it works for everyone And, and thanks to all your listeners and i hope someone puts
0: this info to good use awesome brother all right so if you want to either like you know reach out to Ryan Lee himself or if you just want to keep up on what he's doing uh, the best place to do that is on Instagram he is at breeding cannabis and uh, that's a good place to follow along um, if you want to hear more from Ryan Lee um, I recommend that you check out episode 64 of shaping fire uh, we did this beautiful show on Facebook feminized seeds and female-only breeding, um, which uh, was not only very informative, but Uh, caused a whole bunch of mind-blowing and argumentation in the threads. So um, it's very interesting (laughs) stuff. You should definitely check out episode 64. It is enlightening. And then also, uh, the other place I'm going to mention is uh, the Emerald Cup uh, in 2018. Um, I was there and recorded a great panel that was titled Analytical Cannabis Breeding Programs. And oh my god, what a panel this was. It was uh, Ryan who's our guest today Seth Crawford from Oregon CBD uh, plant uh, uh, patent guru, Reggie Gaudino, Josh Wurzer from SC Labs, and then it was moderated from, uh, by Jeremy Plum from Proof Cultivar. That was just awesome. A bunch, of, a bunch of folks who really know their stuff and came together to talk serious uh, science and trash uh, at Emerald Cup uh, 2018. And you can, uh, you can check that out on the, on the Shango Lose uh, YouTube channel. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you'll also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Lose on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.